Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Hey, this is my least favorite topic to get asked as a coach, and I get it all the time. I think everybody thinks that somehow they're underpaid and need to know how to negotiate in a different way, and everyone's worried that they're paid fairly. That is just a running topic, and I dislike talking about it. So I'm enormously grateful for my guest today because he is a pay expert and can finally answer all the questions that I have been trying to answer over the years. There is so much to understand about how large corporations determine pay so that you can negotiate wisely. And heads up, this is not about any specific company. This is about generally how pay works at large corporations. So my guest today, David Buckmaster, is an expert on pay, as I've said. He's managed global corporate compensation teams at companies like Nike, Starbucks, and Yum! Brands, and he's currently the head of total rewards at Wildlife Studios. Now, again, if you work in one of those companies, this is not your how-to guide specifically for any of those companies. This is, in general, how pay systems work for all companies. Um, David was named to the global shortlist of the 2018 Financial Times and McKinsey & Company Bracken Power Prize for Emerging Business Writers. And this is his first book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses, released in 2021 from Harper. And he's been featured, no surprise, on companies on publications like Fast Company, Market Watch, The Wall Street Journal, originally from Tampa, Florida, and now in Portland, Oregon. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted. I am more delighted than you can imagine. I'm always delighted for my guests, but especially today. All right. I have to ask the question, why did you write this book? I mean, you're leading total, total compensation. You have a day job. Why write the book? Uh, it's true. I, I, I am an actual operator in this space. So I will get off the podcast today and go right back into some very difficult uh, pay issues, right? So, you know, I have a, a both feet in, in that world on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but, you know, for me, writing is just something I've always loved, you know, and uh, my mom, I grew up with a, a single mom who's a librarian, spent a lot of time in bookstores and libraries, just surrounded by books my entire life. And, you know, writing is a natural outflow of that. Uh, I, you know, I was in a job, uh, you know, a handful of years ago where uh, I was just, you know, deeply unhappy, right? I was completely spent. My, my family was not happy. We were living in a location that was not suitable for us. Um, and so there's a part of me that says, you know, to get back to normal, to start feeling good about myself, my career again, I just needed to get back into my hobbies. So writing was kind of that natural space for me. And it, it didn't really matter what I wrote, you know, like, but uh, I, I started to say, because um, like my, my, my history, you know, I've written for, um, you know, like you know, humor articles or book reviews or whatever, but I wanted to try and take on something more substantive. And so, well, I like writing, I need to be writing and I know pay, let me see what I can do. And so I found this prize put on by um, uh, Financial Times and McKinsey, which you referenced in the intro called the Brackenbauer Prize. I wrote this like super stuffy sounding essay about pay because I, you know, it's going to McKinsey, right? So I thought it would be a, uh, that, that was kind of the writing style. Uh, I was fortunate to be shortlisted for that prize. 
And uh, from there, I followed like a very uh, kind of traditional publishing path, you know, signed with an agency, uh, you know, was fortunate enough for HarperCollins to pick up the book. And uh, so here we are, all those uh, months and years later, yeah, we have a book about pay and, and how it works. Great. I'm thrilled. I can't tell you enough, David. You're the third executive that I know that uses writing as a release. Another one I know who wrote a big textbook um, during a particularly difficult year and a half, and that was his outlet in this particular case, and another executive who writes uh, mystery novels, of all things, crime novels, as release. So not unheard of. All right. So let's dig into the details here. I know this is a bit of a lifetime's work, so I'm asking a grossly unfair question. Can you give us a tutorial on how pay works in large corporations? Yeah. So um, my, the book is broken into two parts. The first is pay as we know it. And mm-hmm. that breaks down every facet of how do companies think about pay. And I think what people will find is that uh, companies really think about this in the same way. You know, we look at the same sets of data. We are, are a pretty small world of, uh, of people that sort of rotate in and out of the same companies. Um, the back half of the book is things that I think are broken and ways that I think we need to fix it, right? But the whole first half, if you're looking into all the specific mechanics, if you are, you know, an HR leader who wants to, um, you know, get better at this or an employee who wants to understand how to, what your company is thinking, uh, like this is the first half, the first half of the book is entirely for you. And and what I want to communicate really clearly is like, I think there's this perception of, you know, there's a, the man holding me down, right? You know, um, that they're trying to keep my pay as low as possible. And in my experience, you know, th- this, it's just not the case, you know, like really what's happening is it's, you know, it, it's busy analysts pounding away on spreadsheets, looking at market data, trying to tell a story out of the incomplete picture of uh, what the company can afford, what the people need, what's happening on, you know, in the culture of the company and trying to make the right decisions. You know, um, the, the challenge of large companies is that things are always in flux. You have org changes, you've got mergers, you've got, um, you know, the different financial realities of the business and different priority sets. And, you know, P, uh, investment in pay is usually the last thing on the list, you know, for people to, uh, for companies to want to invest in. They would much rather put the money into, you know, a new product line or a marketing campaign or, uh, you know, a new parking garage or whatever it may be, right? And so uh, because of that, um, you know, people have to understand that, you know, there, there are people that look at this, they're usually tucked away into the corner of the HR team, you know, we're, we're like the only uh, kind of numerically inclined people in most HR groups, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, so we, we're doing everything we can, we're doing as much as we can to try and get our stories prioritized as much as any other part of the business. So, uh, but I, I don't know if people take any solace in that or not, uh, but there are people who will look at this. Um, it, it is not some big, you know, overarching scheme to keep people down. Uh, but, you know, just with anything else in a business, uh, you know, you have to present your findings in a, in a set of priorities and, and it goes through budgeting cycles and all that fun stuff too. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that that's, how these decisions get made. I'm happy to answer any specific questions on any uh, any topics of uh, you know, any specific areas yeah. of pay also. Well, I always say to people, there's not a pot of gold sitting somewhere in a closet and that all you have to do is figure out how to unlock the closet and you can have the pot of gold um, because to increase your pay, we're taking it either from somebody else or from something else. As you rightly said, an investment in the business, in the clients and services and the software and the parking garage. Okay. So I'm interested. You said it is a small world. I do know this and you do know each other because of professional associations and so forth. 
but you said we look at the same data. Tell me a little bit about the data you do look at. That's a great question. And, and I think this is such an, an important point because uh, most people, if you're an employee at a company, you are at a deep disadvantage on the quality of data that you can find online. So if you just search your, you know, what does an accounting manager in, you know, in Minnesota make? Uh, the information might be okay because that's not like a super dynamic talent market, uh, but it's also going to be very incomplete. You know, um, uh, when I, what I mean when I say we're looking at the same sets of market data is there's really a handful of uh, big consultancies who collect this data directly from companies and act as a well, as a, as a referee, basically, right? Because what I can't do, what what is illegal for me is to call up, you know, my peer at Apple or you know any other company and say, hey, what are you paying your software engineers right now, right? That that's like a, that's an antitrust. That that's a big problem. You know, it, it's not really done, you know, in in our field. Um, but what we will do is we participate in what's called a salary survey. And so, you know, usually once a year, maybe maybe more often than that, uh, companies will submit what's called full census data of all of their employee pay information. You know, it's scrubbed of confidential, you know, identifiable information. And we sort of all, all the companies will effectively agree to a set of standards. Like here's what we agree a director is in accounting, uh, you know, a manager and marketing. And then here's the people that we sort of benchmarked to this def set definition that we're all using. And so the third party company will take that, aggregate it and then report it back. And then so we say, well, you're paid competitively to the market. We mean against salary surveys. You know, there are a lot of uh, sort of interesting startups and, and companies that are moving more towards more frequent surveys or empl uh, employee reported data, all of those kinds of things. So this world is getting a lot more interesting as far as data sets go, but mm -hmm. historically forever, and still the primary way that companies are setting their data is coming from a handful of survey vendors. Okay. Okay. So my coming to HR or to someone like you and saying I'm underpaid you will know whether there is some accuracy in that or not accuracy in that. Okay, fair uh, enough. Absolutely. And uh, I'll say uh, it's always interesting to hire people for like my team, you know, for, you know, compensation team or, you know, if I make a job change, like there's really no negotiation because like I know I'm talking to another comp person and I know we're all looking at the same data, right? So again, <laughs> like it's one of those things It's like, well, we both have the answer to the test, you know? And uh, uh, so that level of transparency just makes the transaction quite easy. Okay, so people always say to me that the way to get my salary increase is to go and get another competitive offer and then come back and hope the company will match it. All right, as a comp expert, what's your advice on that strategy? I mean, it, it can be very effective. Uh, it really can. You know, I, I think uh, there are two things happening here. Uh, a lot of traditional compensation programs, like the way you maintain people uh, for uh, maintain people's pay internally in the company, Sometimes the practices are just like, they're too slow, you know, to react. And, and so like, if, if there's sort of one, we'll do a lot of action for you when you come in. But once you're in the company, like it's sort of this kind of routine, like set it and forget it forever kind of thing. And over time, you know, if, if your company doesn't have effective policies for ratcheting people back up, uh, um, then you are going to fall behind, you know? So, you know, there's plenty of data. And I've seen this myself in my, my own career, like you can increase your pay, you know, pretty rapidly when you're more junior uh, by switching companies every few years. Like that's a tried and true track tactic. Absolutely. On the counter offer issue, I, I think you have to be, first, you need to check with your company's policies. There are a lot of companies who have strict, we don't negotiate type policies, right? And so, you know, there's uh, 
there's this data that goes around that I'm not sure is super easy to verify, but like in my experience, it's roughly true that, you know, people that receive a counteroffer tend to leave within the next year anyway, like an overwhelming amount. So there's usually something else going on besides just pay. You know, it's usually, okay, I'm, I am also feeling stuck on my career. I'm also not telling you that I really don't like my manager or other things that are happening, but I might be afraid to say it. And so what I'm instead going to do is focus it entirely on this objective number that doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, you know? So like that, that's something that's happening. Uh, what And what I'll say is if you are prepared to take a counter offer, you absolutely have to be ready to walk away, you know, because like there, there is a part of this, which, you know, based on human behavior, I guess, like, a lot of managers and companies will see this as a straight up betrayal. You know, like, why didn't you trust me, you know, to main, to pay you fairly? And all? Why did you go behind my back and get interviews, all of this stuff? So I'm not saying that's a good thing or any company should view it that way, but nope, they do, right? Especially if you're, uh, if you feel close to this particular person on your team and then they've, you know, gone and taken this action, like the, the natural reaction is, why didn't you come talk to me first to give me a chance mm-hmm. to try and fix this for you? So uh, just know that like, that's, you know, Elsewhere, I sort of said, this is like the nuclear option if you want to take it. Uh, but like, don't do this casually, you know, because you might find yourself in a situation where the company has not willing to negotiate and it has now lost trust in you. I also see if you're in a hot job market and in a hot area. So someone, you know, you're a commodity people want to hire that you can easily go to another company and you can usually bump your salary by as much as 25%. I don't know that you're going to bump it a whole lot more than that, but that's a kind of a routine answer I hear. But I'm also told that then the hiring company will hold you flat for the next couple of years so that you get back in sync with the other people that are in now in that new company. Um, what's your belief or practice or understanding on this? So there's so much at play going on with with the sort of assumptions that, that you've laid out here. In my experience, that um, that that's probably that's probably not going to be accurate for the largest companies out there, right? Because um, uh, just where where to even start on this one? Uh, like uh, a lot of it depends on the country. So the the root number you said twenty five percent might be a bit aggressive, right? But in some countries, it's really not. Uh, it, it also depends a lot on what is the compensation philosophy from your old company into the new company. And so uh, one of the things that we've seen legislatively is that companies are no longer allowed in most places to ask what was your salary history. And I think, honestly, I think that's a, it, it, it's the right legislation. I think that's a great idea because what ends up happening is uh, companies take the risk of by trying to get somebody as cheaply as possible what they're doing is they're importing the bad pay practices or the different pay practices right. from another company. And then all of a sudden they turn around and they realize we've got nine people doing the same job relatively that are paid wildly different rates because we basically just added a fixed percent on whatever they were making before. And that, you know, that can be dramatically different. Um, I, I will say like, I, I have not in my life seen uh, any hard rules in any company around, you know, if you know, we're, we're going to hold you flat for two to three years. And now in practice, like, uh, if you've gotten that 25% increase, because maybe you're you're probably likely taking a bigger job when you go to that next place, uh, like you're not going to get 25% the next year, you know, but you might just go back into that normal cycle with everybody else in the US where, you know, you might get three to 5% based on your performance, but companies tend to separate the recruiting activities and their compensation activities. And I think, I think this is actually a big problem uh, for lots of reasons, but the recruiters might be aggressive to, to get you in the door uh, based on guidelines. But once you're on the roster, the comp team's not really looking at like how long you've been there. It's like, are you performing or not? If you come in right away and you're performing 
amazingly, like your a good comp program is going to accelerate your pay even beyond that, right? But if you're if you're coming in, it might take you a couple of years to really you know to really show any uh, mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. amount of value. You're just going to be kind of lumped into the pool with everybody okay. else. Normal pay increase. Okay, that's an important point because the comp won't have a special spreadsheet for people that we're or a special section of the package that we're going to hold people flat. Okay, let's talk about this idea of total comp, you know, including benefits and bonus and vacation and whatever else goes into that pool. I hear people say you should look at the total comp and that you should think about it as a package. What's your view on that one? I mean, that's 100% true, right? You know, I I think a lot of people, um, if given the choice to say you can make 10% more uh, but this job might take 10 years off your life because it's so stressful. Like, you know, a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people are, uh, uh, might choose that lower salary path, right? To say, well, it's not just about that absolute number. It's about what is the quality of life that I have? How long can I last at this place? Um, you know, I, I, I remember declining a job once because I knew for a fact, based on the culture of this company, that I would not last longer than 18 months, right? Um, and, and so that that is really important. You know, does the company have, you know, values that it adheres to around, uh, you know, around, you know, uh, physical health, mental health, you know, time off, if, if those things are super valuable to you, uh, which, you know, I, I would hope they are. Uh, but uh, on, on a total comp package, you know, the, the big traditional elements are your base pay, bonus, and uh, any equity, if you might have it. So um, you need to think about the the potential returns for that company. You know, if you're in a startup, uh, for example, the returns on equity could be you know, 10, 50x, what they might be at a traditional large company. Uh, so you need to consider all the what if scenarios too. Um, what what I think is important that um, people know is that the larger the company that you're going to, honestly, the, the less negotiation power you're going to have, uh, especially when it comes to, unless you're like a super top executive, right? Uh, because, um, because they've got a tried and true model that they know works. And for most companies, if they've gotten large, that means they also have uh, a, you know, at least a decent employment brand. So they've got enough people that are looking at it uh, or to where they might say, well, if this person is really that complex to bring in, I'm just going to go to the next person in line, right? Like uh, it's just not worth uh, all of the extra administrative processes and custom systems and all of that stuff I would need to do to give this one person an extra two vacation days. What is the point, you know? Uh, and so also in large companies, those systems like just physically can't handle that stuff. So they might be willing to, uh, like if you're going to negotiate, do it on cash up front, like a sign-on bonus or a higher salary, because things like bonus targets, um, you know, and especially vacation, healthcare, all that stuff, like that's usually non-negotiable. Like they just don't, like they just won't touch that stuff because they can't maintain it. Okay. That's an interesting point that realizing that this is maintained by a system and a very complicated one to see, keep it consistent on a global basis. Mm-hmm. So you got to know where the company can easily negotiate. All right. Good point there. Okay. Can we talk about pay bans? Yes. Explain how this generally works. So pay bans, you might also hear this, uh, I think like the technical language is, so you've got pay ranges, right? A pay range might say this job is paid, you know, the range can go from 80,000 to 120,000. Uh, and like, uh, it's kind of a widespread, right? But like a pay ban, like the, the kind of the wonky language is usually like a, like a wider version of that. So companies can either have like a lot of different pay ranges that stack on top of each other to, you know, kind of give you rapid feeling and progression. Or they can say, we're going to have less of those, but just make them wider, right? Mm-hmm. So a pay, uh, and so I think people use these terms interchangeably, which is fine. But, you know, the, the, uh, like in either case, what it means is that, 
there's a, a range of values that the company will consider competitive for your job. So again, it could be 80,000 or 120,000. Let's just use that. Uh, but what they might say is, okay, we understand that like the average person in this job who's fully performing, doing a nice job, um, you know, could take a lateral job somewhere else. We're going to set that person at what's, what's called the midpoint. So the middle of that. Uh, and so the minimum would be 80,000. The midpoint would be 100. The maximum would be 120. And then the, the, they sort of kind of sort people based on their skills, experience, and performance within that range. So if you're recently promoted to that job and that job level, the company may be totally appropriately paying you at, you know, 85,000, 90,000, because on a comparative basis, you're not quite at that performance level of somebody who's really been working at that job and doing a great job for a few years. So the reason promotion person might be lower in the pay range, person who's performing really well or, you know, uh, adequately, like the average market person kind of in the middle. And then like that superstar who's really like or either hard to replace or like super high potential, doing great, high performer, like they might be at 110 or something. And the company will step back and view three people, 85, 100, 110 all paid perfectly competitively, even though the absolute values of those numbers that they're receiving are different. And so like that, that's, uh, that, that's where we get into this idea of um, equal pay versus pay equity, right? And that's a mm -hmm. super important topic that I, I'm sure we're going to get to. We're going to come on to that one. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. But that's, okay. that's probably how it works. Right. And I think that's an important piece to know because I hear all the time people say, well, I just found out what my competitor or what my colleague over here makes and yada, yada, yada. But you don't know a whole bunch of the other pieces that you just described. You don't know the years. You don't know how they're viewed on the performance. You don't know if they're conceding their star in some ways. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns. Okay. If I was working in a company and I wanted to know what the pay range was for people at my level in my type of job, can I go ask? Every company is going to have a different policy on this. Uh, legally, there's no requirement that your company gives this to you. Uh, um, but um, some companies make this very transparent. And I think, you know, we, we will see more movement into that space, you know, over the, over the coming years, especially with some Recent legislation out of Colorado, you know, there's one in January 1 happening in California, there's New York laws. So this is definitely the direction we're going to go to. Um, if your company is unwilling to share that information, which a lot of companies are unwilling to share, uh, you can sort of approximate what those uh, ranges might be. And, and I think some of this transparency legislation actually does help um, in, in that regard. And so, so right now, if you are to... Um, like you know search your market data online you, you might you might find really inconsistent data uh, for lots of reasons that we that we discussed like you might view yourself as a data scientist the market might view you as a data analyst like you know there, there might be a very different level between what you think you are and what you actually are right so uh but one place that you can one place that you can go to is uh that you know you, you can search um you know some of the uh like transparency laws that uh you know from colorado like companies will have to put uh you know the, like at least the minimum of their pay range um in job postings if they intend on hiring remotely in colorado and uh so that's like a good starting point to just sort of say well at minimum it should be this and then if you view yourself as a really high talent in that area uh you know you can sort of tack on 15 20 percent on top of that number and sort of approximate what the company views as being competitive for that role okay all right what about sources like Glassdoor? You know, a lot of people are saying, I go on Glassdoor and I see what people are paid. I, do you think that's reliable? 
In a lot of cases, no, it's not. Um, so, um, so let me let me say clearly, I'm I'm very happy that the sites exist. Um, I think they'll get better with time. But it, it's sort of like reading Yelp reviews online. You know, like like it, it's uh, you go on and you find that okay, well, all I'm seeing is people who have had the worst experiences and the best experience, and who also might not like have a, a full appreciation for okay, uh, w- what should a, a properly cooked steak look like? You know, and so like there, there's some element of hoping that if you get enough data, it'll normalize in the right way, which is cool. Like we should pursue that. But I would I would encourage people to have multiple sources and, and sort of verify some of these things. Okay, fair enough. All right, what have I not asked you about that I should have asked you about? You know, I, I think we touched on the topic of, of pay equity versus equal yeah. pay already. You know, I, I think the, the, the challenge here is that, you know, there really is, there's two challenges here. There's like, there's no legal standard for this. Um, you know, there, there, there is some stuff like in the UK, but there really isn't any sort of legal standard anywhere else. Um, uh, and then the, except for like maybe France. Um, and then also the target is always moving. And so companies have, have a lot of leeway to sort of define what this means for themselves. And so in our earlier example, when we said somebody could be 85, 100 or 110 in the same job, and it'd be perfectly competitive, that might be super true, right? Like that might be totally fine. But if your expectation is that everybody's paid 100, that is just not the metric that companies are using. So when we say pay equity, it's can we explain the differences statistically? And so if you can step back and say, well, we can statistically validate why this person is 85, another's 100, another's 110, then the company is not going to view that as any sort of equal pay problem. But if the company has chosen to say, we're going to have a fully formulaic equal pay approach, where everybody makes a hundred, like then, then, and they're not doing it, then you've got a different sort of argument, right? So you have to understand that there's no sort of set way of doing this. You have to interpret your company's policies, how they're trying to do it, and then understand how they think about this. And I break, I break down all the mechanics of this in the book also, if people are interested in that topic. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I want to get into this and I also want to get into, you know, how, how we, um, can start to fix or why we can't fix some of the problems. But this seems like, uh, so any last piece of advice, if I'm going in to negotiate, let's say my starting salary, any advice on how to do that? Um, so I would not give a number. If you're, if you're, if you're about to take a new job, I would not be the first one to give a number. I think it is the company's responsibility to make sure their people are paid barely based on their own standards. Um, like there, there's very few, like, hypothetical scenarios where you might give a number like if you know for a fact you're going to take a, a smaller job you might and you need a minimum living threshold that might be the only way to do it reason to do it but otherwise i would let the company speak first and then and then uh, sort of gauge your response based on that uh, i think sort of a classic negotiation technique you know around don't speak first but i think it's so true in this because the average employee is or new hire is at such an information disadvantage you know compared to what their company actually knows and has so i that that, that would be my advice okay Okay. All right. I do have one last question. So I'm in a company, I'm not taking a new job, but I believe that I'm paid uh, unfairly and I've made a case. And let's say even my manager agrees that we need to sort of ratchet up your pay a bit. But is there a limit to how much an average company is going to give anybody a pay increase without a job change in the course of a year? 
Yeah, I say in the U.S., anything over like fifteen percent, I think it's going to be a challenge without a, without another uh, counter offer or uh, in in your hand. You know, I think what you have to do is make your story as simple as possible because it's very unlikely that your manager has universal or uh, like unilateral authority to say yes. They're going to have to ratchet your story up a couple of rungs or over to HR, and you just need to be very crisp, very clear. And if you can sort of uh, show in our example of the 85 or 110 that you're super experienced and high performing and you're at paid 85 that there's a mismatch between what you're paid and what the company says you probably should be paid within their range those are super easy cases to make right but but i do think over maybe 15 percent in the u.s you're, you're you're gonna find a challenge right i know um i've seen some cases where people will say we can't you know we want to get you to 25 percent more pay or 20 percent more pay but we can't do it all at one time without a competitive offer so there will be a year-on-year strategy to kind of get a little bit extra and bump you towards where you'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, perfect. All right, David, great conversation, wonderful tips. The book, if you want to know more about this one, is called Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses. We're going to take a break. When we come back, what I want to focus on is why is this pay thing so difficult to get fair, equitable, or right? And what can we do about it to fix it? We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is David Buckmaster. The book that we are talking about is Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses. David has just given some incredible tips about how pay works in large companies in general. Particularly, I think the most important part is to recognize that all compensation experts usually, in large companies, participate in a consulting project that gives them incredibly accurate data about the pay ranges for classified jobs where they've agreed where the jobs are, who the people are, and it's generic. So we're not going to know what somebody at one company is paid versus the other, but you certainly know what an average, let's say software engineer is paid around the 
country, and I guess re- presumably around the world, and that there's no way we're as individuals going to have the same level of data that already exists within the compensation function in your company. So you're at a disadvantage. And I think starting with that one, just recognizing that there are a range of salaries that somebody will be paid for the job that you're at in your company. And you're probably going to stick within that range and not go outside of that range unless it's really unusual, extraordinary circumstances. I also like the David's, um, if you're negotiating a salary, negotiate on the things that are easy to fix, like sign-on bonus or starting salary. Some of the others are much harder to fix. And in fact, some of them are impossible because the system can't handle it. Okay, so David, let's turn to this whole thing about equitable pay. And you said already that every company defines equitable in their own way. So I could say it's equitable that we have a justifiable range for a single job and that some people are paid lower and some people are paid higher and I can justify it. I can give data to support it and they will define that as fair. Other companies say no fair is if you're doing the job, you're paid exactly the same as everybody else doing the job. Okay. So um, how, (laughs) how do we begin to think about what is appropriate in this space of being equitable? So there are certainly more companies that choose the former path uh, and, and say, you know, we'll have a range and we expect people in the same job to be paid, you know, all within that range. Uh, in some cases, maybe even above. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, then there are companies who will say this job pays X. You know, I think uh, th- there are some very notable companies who have come out with uh, very formulaic based pay, and so they also happen to be the companies that you know get a lot of press for things like pay transparency um, and, and that sort of thing. But the trade off that you make there is that. The more transparent you get about pay, the more likely the company is to just apply a formula to everybody. And, you know, I think the the sort of counterpoint to that that a lot of companies will make is, okay, so what, how do I how do I manage performance in that environment if everything is super formulaic? Or how do I go compete uh, for top talent who may, you know, to where our formulas don't really make sense? Because once you introduce some of those formulas, uh, you can't break it. You know, like everybody, 100% of people have to be on it or your entire system is sort of wrecked, you know? Um uh, so the, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, people are going to, or companies are going to prefer, you know, having greater flexibility through the use of pay ranges, like, um, can also create some challenges, you know, for, uh, for a disconnect in how pay is communicated. Uh, because when you aren't terribly prescriptive, you sort of create a vacuum for people to fill in with whatever belief that they want to about pay, you know? And so, Certainly things get missed at companies, you know, like somebody gets left behind, those things can get fixed. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, I could pull up a spreadsheet of any company in the world and probably find some some things that have questions about pretty quickly. Uh, but this is a, uh, you know, an important point about equal pay is that it's not like a one-time fix. You know, this is something where uh, you have to constantly maintain, have good processes and systems in place, you know, to, to identify problem spots um, early. And you have to create mechanisms whereby employees feel safe to say, hey, I think I've got a problem here. Um, can we talk about pay and career? So um, that that sort of uh, um, that sort of kind of blank space can definitely create challenges for companies. But I understand why they take that route. Right. So when you say you look through the data to find problems, can you give us some clue about what that kind of process looks like? I mean, I don't want the whole details because I'm sure it's quite complicated, but I'm just curious, what, what do you look yeah. for? 
Yeah. So if I were like, if I were to take a random company and say, hey, give me your entire comp roster, you know, the first things that I'm going to take a look at is to try and see, you know, do they have any sort of leveling structure in place? You know, do they say we've got five levels of software engineers and um, or we've got three levels of, you know, finance, financial planning people or whatever it may be. And to sort of uh, sort of organize people based on cohorts. Uh, and then the next thing that I'll do is to say, OK, so let, let's talk about um, you know, how are they performing, you know, and, uh, you know, are, are my top performers paid more? Um, and also, let me try and reconcile that up against uh, how long they've been at the company, which is sort of a signal, at least one signal uh, about like how effective they uh, might be in their job. Now, the missing data point there is, were they doing the same job for 10 years prior to coming? And that's like, that's like a black hole of information that no company has a has a good hold on to be. And so um, those are the kind of things where I would start looking and say, okay, do we have a mismatch? Can I have I found somebody who is paid very low in the pay range? Is a high performer, has been in the job for seven years, and we've just brought in three new hires at the same job who by all accounts are brand new, haven't proven their performance, but they're paid 10 or 15% more. Like those are the kinds of things that I would want to make sure that you you solve quite quickly, right? Like those are the obvious areas that, that I, you know, you would start to look. Beyond that, you know, you have to you have to adapt a lot of context to the business. So this is where having, you know, really strong managers, uh, HR leaders who can really give you that the information behind the story that the data is telling is so critical. And this is why I think HR, like your kind of typical HR business partner or generalist, just has to be really well versed in comp, and and one of the challenges that I outline is that most of them just are are like uh, the, are almost allergic to this stuff, you know, like that, like a lot of them are not necessarily math people by uh, by nature, uh, which is fine, but they kind of have to be, you know, if you're going to be a business partner, you have to be able to understand the most expensive line item on your business and and the stories that you're telling about your people through those numbers. And when somebody comes to you as an HR business partner, if you don't know how the system is working, you're going to have a really hard time making that person feel that they've been heard. I, I can totally appreciate that. All right. So why? let's assume first that we can get an agreement on what equitable pay means. So that, and I'm going to give that I think most people would like to work in a system where there is some pay for performance. So let's assume that there's some range for a given job. So I'm paying my top performers better than my lower performers. I think that's reasonable. Okay. And I make sure that I haven't brought in people who are brand new, not proven themselves and paying them more than people who've been in the job and really top performing for a long time. So that would, that's another one. Um, why is this so hard to fix? Um, because a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's not captured on the spreadsheet, you know, like you've said, um, uh, yeah, I think like the entire world economy runs in Excel, you know, like, uh, which is not, not ideal, you know? So I think there are some really interesting software platforms that are sort of sniffing out these issues and could kind of say, you know, here's, here's some things you might need to watch out for that kind of stuff. So I, I do, I'm like, I'm very optimistic about this world in the future. There's a lot of VC money going into this space also. Um, but it, ultimately it can also be a product of, you know, as it has my manager, uh, taking a look at this uh, in a while. You know, I think if you if you're at a large company, you've got 40, 50,000 people on the payroll, people are constantly coming in and out of the company. Uh, you know, company uh the comp person, the comp team is going to be quite small always, you know, a handful of people at most. You can't capture every possible story, you know. And so this is where I think managers have to realize that it's not HR's job to fix everybody's pay all the time. You as a manager are responsible for this, for making sure that you're advocating on behalf of your people, that you pay them correctly on the way in. Uh, because if you miss on that step, on uh, what they're paid on the way in, it is, it, especially in large companies, 
it can be extremely complex to get things fixed. You know, like off cycle pay is always very hard because it's never budgeted, this kind of thing. Um, but uh, managers have to step into their own role also in the same way that you're managing the performance, you need to be actively managing their pay also and, and identifying those issues. Like the worst thing, like the worst thing that happens, uh, you know, to comp people is that you have somebody complaining about their pay, which happens all the time, right? Like, I mean, that that's that's normal. Like nobody has ever once called me and said, thank you for paying me enough money. That's just not how it works, you know? Uh, uh, so you know that it's always going to be an issue. But the question that every comp person says is, why didn't I find this first? You know, like why, like why? Because you know that if that person is coming to you, they've been thinking about it for a long time, that they're taking a great, they, they're going to feel like they've taken a great career risk to even come talk to you about this. Because like now I'm in HR's radar and I view HR as the, police and they're here for the company, not for me, you know, all of this kind of uh, stuff you hear about HR and trying to avoid them, you know, but uh, um, uh, I always think, why, why, why didn't we have the appropriate systems to catch this? Now, to be fair, sometimes their arguments are not valid. And so, you know, to, to maintain an equal, uh, an equal pay system or an equitable pay system, like you also have to be willing to say no sometimes. And and I think that is a, a part of that gets missed all the time. I, I've seen some truly ridiculous requests, uh, you know, across my desk, you know, in the in many years that I've been doing this. And so uh, you, you have to think the person's advocating for themselves. Clearly, they want the number to always go higher. My role would be at advocate for the company, you know, uh, and I don't mean that we say no, I mean that I need to try and preserve this system. So that such that if I say yes to this person, by the same sort of mental structure, I can make a yes and no decision about somebody else who has a similar problem, right? Because comp is always in my experience, comp is just answering like the same five or 10 questions over and over again. And so you have to think about in terms of mental models. If I say yes under these conditions, would I have also treated the next person fairly under the same set of conditions? So, and sometimes the result of that is a no for people. And, and that that's that, that can be very hard for, for, for people to get, especially if it results in somebody leaving the company. Right. All right. You said the same five set of questions. I can't let that one go. What are those five set of questions you're asking yourself? Um, you know, uh, the, the the questions are, you know, I, I found something online. I think I'm paid under market. You please fix this. You know, it's always a big yeah. one. So you have to explain, well, that data is probably not right. You know, your job right. is actually scoped in this way. Uh, here's how pay ranges work, that kind of thing. You know, right now there's tons of questions about uh, cost of living and inflation. And I think that's also something that people don't fully appreciate. Like uh, comp teams do not set your pay based on inflation rates. And I think uh, I think there's going to be a lot of very disappointed people in the first half of next year. Uh, when they realize your company is not set a 10% merit budget for 10, 12% merit budget in the US for their people. Um, so th those kinds of things happen all the time. You know, I've had uh, many times in my career, you know, people have just sent me a, a spreadsheet of, of their personal budget. You know, I'm like, you know, our, our role is to make sure people are paid, you know, according to the market value of this job, not to help you make lifestyle decisions based on, you know, the, the pay that you receive. And I think, and let, let me add an important caveat here. The, like the empathy that you show in these uh, conversations matters a lot because like, you know, I've got a lot of experience like in the retail space where people really, truly like that budget conversation is a meaningful one because they're not, they're not earning in a lot of cases enough to put the basic building blocks of life together. So the level of empathy and care and that you need to put into that is much, much higher, you know, to be able to respond and make sure that you're, you're escalating pay in a way that makes sense uh, for the company and for the person. Um, uh, it, it's a lot different than if like it's an executive coming to you, you know, uh, which in my experience, like uh, it, it's, it's like inversely correlated, like the more money you make, like the more uh, upset you get about your own pay. Um, but it's, um, you know, so that's, uh, you know, that's maybe that's how they got there. I don't know. But it, uh, <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So as a manager, 
I should be, and I think one of the problems we have is that the managers come and go too frequently. So there's a reorganization or somebody leaves or there's a change. And then you've got a new manager who doesn't actually know your performance and hasn't looked at the comp yet and says, well, we'll look at it next year. And then they're gone before they get a chance to look at it. So there's a lot of too much movement is making this difficult. But for managers, what should managers be doing to ensure that their teams are paid equitably? So what's your wish list from managers? Yeah, that is, that's a really important point because it's not just that the manager changes, but the people on the team change too, you know, and it's yeah. like, well, maybe the team is, is paid. Okay. Like maybe the company looks at, you know, uh, equitable pay once a year, you know, um, but you know, three months later, you know, you've hired three new people and, and the numbers are off again. But maybe by the next time you do the review, maybe it's been fixed because the company is always shifting and changing. You know, if I'm a manager, the first thing you need to understand is um, you just need to know your company's policies, right? Because like, how do you navigate, you know, if do they have a process available for off cycle increases or is it the kind of company that forces 100% of pay changes into, you know, an annual review process or a twice a year process? Like that will help you sort of, um, set the right expectations for people, you know, because I think managers sometimes uh, can, you know, appropriately play the role of advocate, but set their people up poorly um, in in terms of setting their their expectations to say, you know, if the company only does pay reviews in March uh, and they've come to you in August, you know, and then yeah. you, know, you, you realize that like it, it start, you start to lose credibility with your people over time to say, well, I've been fighting for you for the last eight months, but HR won't do anything. It's like, well, how the manager just sort of, talk to HR first instead of uh, to say, hey, our policy is like, we only do this in March. Like you need to go set expectations more appropriately for your people. So like really contextualizing the particular compensation case for that person and setting their uh, expectations appropriately is super helpful. Now all companies like, in my experience, all companies will have some sort of pay adjustment process when something is truly broken. But you also need to understand that like, what level of seriousness is it? You know, the company is not going to like drop everything if somebody is 3% underpaid, you know, but if they find that you've got somebody who for a variety of reasons, most likely neglect, that person is paid 20, 30% less than they should be. Like those are the kinds of things that start to make the argument much louder within the company. And so uh, again, it goes back to this idea of you have to create a very simple case, you know, because those in any sort of pay adjustment is going to require more people than you realize behind the scenes to get approval. So, and it has to be, excuse me, a story that we want to tell that says I can justify this pay increase based on some semblance of market data so that I stay in range, some semblance of performance and some consistency with what the policies of my company are like. And it can't be what I need, what I want, what I think I should have, what somebody promised me. It's got to be a factual case that will get reviewed up the chain. Absolutely. And honestly, my, my advice is the more you can depersonalize this, the better, you know, because uh, comp is one of those things that, you know, people understandably get very emotional about, you know, comp is a, you know, this is the way you feed your family. It's the way, you know, it, it affects your entire lifestyle, like it, it, your retirement, all of those things. And so you want the number to be right. Uh, but if you can depersonalize it and say, hey, like, here's just the facts. Here's what happened. I'm not seeking blame on any particular person. I'm not saying they're trying to hold me down or they're evil or they, you know, they hate women or whatever it may be. But just say, hey, listen, like my uh, I'm highly experienced, high performer. I'm low in the range. This seems like a problem compared to our own policies. And also maybe I'm in the wrong job, you know, like maybe I'm doing director level work, but you're calling me a senior manager, you know? And so like, can, can I get my job reevaluated? Those sorts of things, those deep personalization, those objective ways of talking about it, those sorts of arguments have the highest chance of, of, uh, of resounding with, with uh, people who actually get to make the decision on pay. 
Okay. All right. So we were talking about managers need to know the policies, they need to know the policies about when pay is reviewed, what's the planning for off-cycle pay, um, is there one, how do we do it, what happens, um, and taking a look at the data to say that people are in the same range or paid reasonably and new hires are not paid differently than existing hires, and that whatever I'm going to do for one, I can justify for everybody else. Is there anything else managers need to know? Um. Yeah, I think they need to take the opportunities that they have, uh, like around uh, those pay reviews, you know, like you only get a couple of like moments that matter, you know, around pay, you know, like uh, the hiring moment is essential. You know, I think some companies will sort of bifurcate or leave the manager out of that process. But I think the manager needs to insist that they understand why they're paying somebody a certain rate versus just totally outsourcing that to the talent acquisition team. Uh, because again, you know, if you've screwed up at time of hire, it's very hard to get somebody caught up. Um, if you have a budget to work with in your in your regular, you know, company wide pay review, you be very careful about that. Don't just like the like the, the sort of technical non technical term in my field is peanut buttering. You know, it's like, uh -huh. well, I just want to not cause conflict. It's like, well, three percent for everybody. You know, it's like, um, you know, with pay, like you're going to make people mad no matter what you do. Like that's just how this field works. Uh, but you need to be really thoughtful to say, well, I've given you know, Sally, 6% and John, 3%. And I have very thoughtful reasons as to why, uh, because people do talk about this stuff, you know? And so like, take those moments, be very thoughtful. It's not just a boring HR exercise and, and make sure that you are advocating for people in the right way. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So let's shift then from managers and talk about what do we need C-suite executives to do to really begin to fix some of the inequitable pay problems we see? This is such an interesting topic. Uh, and it, um, it, I have a whole section in the book that talks about uh, the, the way executive pay works and about how the things that help their pay accelerate are the same types of things that people are asking for you're seeing in legislation, right? So if you are seeing, if you are seeing, um, you know, more sort of demands or transparency for, you know, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, you know, all executive pay for public companies is totally public, you know? Um, so uh, you can look up the top five people in any public company in, in, uh, in the U.S. right now and know exactly what they're paid. And so there are whole consultants out there who just collect that data. You know, every CEO thinks that they are, you know, better than the next CEO. So naturally they view it's like, well, so now I've got full transparency, but I want that number plus because I'm so good, right? And so like they're making the same arguments to everybody else, you know? So it's like they, they sort of benefited from this from this idea. And like, uh, I sort of have this, uh, I don't know, pseudo provocative idea in the book to say like, you know, you're, you're, the, the compensation committee of your board essentially functions as a union for executives, right? Like, like they're, they're there to make sure that they are reporting. Uh, you know, all of the, you know, that your your pay is increasing, like there's a process in place to make sure that it's being reviewed appropriately. And so I think just realize that those sorts of mechanics, you can create very similar things, you know, for everybody else in the company. In my experience, one of the one of the things that is unfortunately true, especially in large companies, is I don't believe that most CEOs actually know what the lowest paid person in their company is paid. And uh, and so um you know, some have been, you know, quite, quite good about this and, and it's sort of, uh, you know, accelerated pay, especially in, you know, retail environments, the restaurants or whatever it may be. But I think if you're a CEO, you got to ask this question, you got to know, right? Because what this does is this creates, a, a, you know, a, a set of pressures for the whole, for the HR team, a set of permission uh, for them to go fix these things. Because what's true about pay is 
the lower you go in the organization, the harder it is to get a pay increase, right? Because a uh, person on the bottom row has to go convince this person, then that person. And then like, it, there's just more layers there. So naturally it's more difficult. Uh, and so, um, but once the CEO starts asking, what is my lowest paid person paid and why? Tell me the process. That sort of like, that will sort of explode the entire argument. You know, I think this is why the five for $15 an hour thing caught so many companies totally off guard because they had no clue what their people were paid. And then because of that, it, that data filters right back into our market surveys, you know? So like, even now, if you look at national retail data, like $15 is not the market rate. It, it just isn't. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so companies have to sort of thread this and be able to say, well, or maybe the ways of always looking at this data is just not good enough. You know, maybe we need to say, uh, I need, maybe I need to advocate as a CEO and say our minimum floor is going to be X, you know, and and the companies who have made bold choices on that, they have not been looking at data. They've just said, we're just going to go pay, you know, 17, 18, 20, whatever it may be. I promise there's no survey data that's that's helping them support that argument. Uh, so like the CEO has to take a much more active role in this uh, CHRO also. And again, this is why it's so important that your head of HR has an interest in compensation because this stuff matters a lot. And understand how it works. I think what is insightful to me in this conversation is recognizing how much there is a system, Mm -hmm. a system for reviewing the data, a system of data to start with in the first place, um, a process for the pay ranges, a process for evaluating fairness and unfairness, a process for adjusting. There's just a lot of processes. And if you think about how many people get paid in most large companies, it makes sense that there's a quite complicated process to just run that payroll um, so it's understanding those processes that let us shine a light on where things are not working so well. Okay. If you had a magic wand, is there one more thing you'd have companies do? I mean, are you a believer in transparency? Yeah, I, so I am. So I get, but I, you know, I think pay transparency is a, um, is a spectrum, right? Because, you know, we've talked already about the companies who are fully transparent. There are some companies that will basically, you know, they'll, they'll publish everybody's pay online, you know, not, not just internally, but they'll do it publicly online. Um, and, you know, and, and if, you know, if you're a government agency or whatever, this has been the case forever. Uh, but the trade-off for that is that uh, to do that effectively is you sort of have to introduce a purely formulaic pay model. Yeah. Um, and uh, most companies are very unwilling to do that. Yeah. But I will, I do think that there are, there's going to be a lot of benefits that come out of some of these transparency laws like companies are going to have to get their their houses in order much faster and it's going to be messy for a while to be honest um, but I think that this is going to um, help companies really think more carefully about their policies about how they maintain the the structural systems as you said around how they manage pay within the organization um you know I'm super interested to see how this how this plays out but I think the era of pay being in the dark ages is totally over, you know, between uh, the new legislation and some of the new startups that are coming in and and making better information available faster to everybody. Uh, Companies, if they're not thinking about this, they need to get ready now. Uh, That's an, it's an interesting one. I think you're right. And I recognize it's not the same globally, but you know, as one country starts, then others tend to start to getting online. David, what a fabulous conversation. A, I've learned more and B, that I now have a reference to give people instead of me answering how do they go negotiate for better salary. So my guest today, David Buckmaster, um, a total rewards person at Wildlife Studios, just for interest. And the book is called Fair Pay, How to Get a Rise, Close the Wage Gap and Build Stronger Businesses. It's been great fun. Again, I think the highlight for me is just understanding the complexity of the systems that are involved and the thoughtfulness that most comp 
people put into how to make the system work. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.